Good morning, everyone. It's really absolutely lovely to be back here with you all. And I do thank the Apostle Alfred Williams and also his precious team for the invitation. And um, it really is great. I so enjoyed the first meeting in January. And um, today we're continuing along the theme. Uh, a very different approach, however, this morning. I'd also like to introduce my dear friend Andrew from Colchester, a businessman in Colchester, and um, a dear friend of mine over the years. And um, so please do say hello to him. And, uh, you know, don't let him go without shaking his hand and giving him a real good CFT hug and kiss. Okay. Great. Well, please do be seated. <clears throat> Thank you. That was uh, wonderful. Well, in January, we were looking at how to get closer to people in our world and sphere of influence uh, and to bear witness to the one who has entered our lives and changed our lives so wonderfully. And, um, but, you know, one of the problems is when you become a Christian is, is very often you lose your, let's call them, non-Christian friends. You tend to burn your bridges. You get so absorbed into church life and, and in your newfound uh, experience and faith. And um, if you're not careful, you can lose the links that you had beforehand. And you know that Jesus gave us a commission when he left this earth. The very last thing he said was that we would be witnesses to him in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the wider world. And in January, we showed that we, each of us, although we cannot reach into the whole world, each of us does have our own Jerusalem, our own Judea, our own Samaria, and our own wider world. And there are people that I can reach in my world that you'll never be able to reach. You just lo locally, it's a locational thing. You just won't be able to do it and, and vice versa. People in your world that I would never meet even. So we have our own sphere of influence. And God gives us opportunities to uh, begin to develop deeper relationships and to introduce people. I'm so proud to be a Christian, I have to say. Uh, it's just such a wonderful thing to know the living God. And we want to tell about what we've discovered and what we found. The problem is, as you get closer to people, you realize that there are barriers down. 
I would call them barriers of the minds. We want to share our faith and people want to hear us, but those barriers exist perhaps over a lifetime. People have become hardened to the claims of Christ. And they have questions. I mean, my daughter at the age of nine, I was going to tell her a story at bedtime. And she asked me, Daddy, can you prove that this book is God's book? It's just that I have been learning about other books today in my religious studies at school. (laughs) And she said that, you know, do you have evidence? She asked me, do you have evidence? She used that word, a new word in her vocabulary. And so that was a very engaging um, bedtime uh, chat. I thought, well, I've got about five minutes with you maximum before lights out. And you're asking me these huge, elephantine questions that are mind-boggling. I can answer, but I need more time. So, hence I began to write and to think and to study about what I've now called evidence of life. You see, Amy had a question. In fact, she had quite a few. In fact, they mounted up over time. And the problem is, if those sort of questions are not answered, the barrier stays down. As an illustration, in in 1988, I was on a team. uh, We went on a mission uh, mission trip into uh, what was then uh, Czechoslovakia to Prague. It was still under, or had recently been under communist rule. And uh, uh, we went from Prague then to what was East Germany, we were going to Dresden. Well, East Germany, of course, was under, still under uh, communist rule. And the wall in Berlin was still up. So we were driving in a, a Volkswagen with Western number plates. And when the guards at the barriers between Czechoslovakia and East Germany, you couldn't just drive straight in, the barriers were down. They were down and there were armed guards at the barrier. They looked at our car kind of suspiciously. You know, who are these? What's the, who are these guys coming along? Only if we had the right paperwork would that barrier go up. Only if we gave the right answers would that barrier go up. If we didn't, we could proceed no further. And there are people who are desperately searching for truth. They want to know God. But the questions remained unanswered. Questions concerning creation. Questions concerning the authenticity of scripture. The uniqueness of Jesus. There are so many religions today. Which leader do we believe in? Whom do we follow? Who do we follow? Questions that keep barriers down unless we can find the answers and help to get those barriers lifted up. And then we can proceed in our journey of wishing to get closer and communicating. Um, I want to tell a a, a real-life story. Uh, I call it The Girl on a Train. It's it's not, not related to the book nor the film, A Girl on a Train, but this girl was a girl on a train. In fact, she was a science graduate. And it was packed train. I was cu- I'd done business in London. I was coming out of Liverpool Street Station. I entered into the restaurant carriage. It was packed. 
There was one seat in front of me, I think, vacant. This girl came and sat down. I was reading a book called Origin of Life by a professor, a Christian professor called Jim Brooks. And um, she leaned over. She was a very direct, very, very um, engaging person. She leaned over. I've never seen her before in my life. And she said, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of religion or are you on the side of science? And so I thought to myself before answering, I thought, it's a strange question really. Because you know, in time past, theology and science walked hand in hand. But since those times, there has been a separation between science and theology. They were both important. Science would explain how something happened, and theology, the theologians, were to explain why it happened. But now there's a separation, I mean, even to the point of divorce. So I said to her, well, I believe that all scientific theories have to measure up to Scripture. And in this case, concerning the origin of life, to Genesis chapter 1. And so she said to me, well, this is where we disagree. Uh, You believe that God created the universe. We believe the Big Bang was the beginning of the universe. The Big Bang. Why? Well, cosmologists believe that the universe is still in a state of violent explosion. Their proof for that, one of the proofs, is the Doppler effect, which is the redshift in the spectrum of light being emitted from the galaxies. And then you have the radio astronomers who have found and detected faint radio waves coming from all parts of the universe, all indicating that the galaxies are are moving, that the stars are still all in a state of violent explosion. Stars are hurtling at hundreds of miles per second. God, the Creator, was not required For this to happen, she said. So I said to her, well, just a minute, have you ever read Genesis 1 verse 1? Genesis 1 verse 1 has a bold assertion. In the beginning, and I said, I'm glad to hear you talking about a beginning. At least you've come back to the point where you believe there was a beginning. Because prior to this, you believed that it was eternal. That the galaxies were just always evolving and and moving apart, etc. At least you now believe there was a beginning. Great. I said, in Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Full stop. A bold assertion. I love Genesis 1 verse 1. Because it doesn't say, please believe me. Trust me. Would I lie to you? Oh, please believe me. It's a bold assertion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No apologies for it. That's a fact. So... I said, have you noticed there, number one, it does not say how God did it. It doesn't even say when he did it. It just said he did it. So I said, he could have used a big bang, a big explosion if he wanted to. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, when you go on and read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, when it says... When it says there that the earth was without form and void, the consequence 
of the creation, the consequence of the bringing into effect all of these things, there are two Hebrew words used, tohu and bohu. So it said that the earth was without form, tohu, and void, bohu. The Hebrew words mean an indistinguishable ruin, a waste, a void. So in the beginning God created the the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say how he did it, but in verse 2 it says, and the earth was a wasteland. It was void of life. So I said, well, I don't really have a problem with the idea of of a big explosion. I mean, why not? God could do it that way. I'm not going to make that a point of the argument. That's not really the point of it anyway. The fact is he did it. But what would you expect if there was an explosion, an uncontrolled explosion? I mean, this is what the scientist was talking to me about. It was an uncontrolled explosion. Nobody was there to control. Now, you can use dynamite in a quarry, and you you get the required effect. But this is a gigantic, massive explosion which brought everything into being, and it was uncontrolled. Well, if you set off a bomb in a precinct, a busy precinct, and it blew up, when would it ever result in order and life? Well, of course it wouldn't. You would have a catastrophe. You would have a mess. So I said, if there was indeed a big explosion, and that's how God did it, it had to be controlled, because look at our earth and our solar system. We have order, we have life, we have laws operating in our solar system. Laws that that govern the uh, tides, that govern seasons, gravity, gravitation. Where did those laws come from? If indeed it was an uncontrolled explosion, you would never have the order that we see. It would just destroy. But we find, we find in our world today all of these wonderful evidences of a controlled creation. God had to be in it. God was in it. Uh, she then went on to mankind. She said, well, what about Homo sapien? We believe, we believe that man, that homo, modern man, Homo sapien, came into existence about a million years ago or so. He, invo- he evolved. He began just with those, those little uh, building blocks to life. Random chemicals moving about, which collided, and then with the energy of the sun somehow formed the first organism, very basic organism, which then got more complex over time and eventually evolved to become Homo sapien, a living creature of some sort. Call him modern man. It all happened by chance. You don't believe that, do you? So I said, no, I don't believe that. I said, what I believe is what Genesis 1 says, that God made us in his image. He is a spirit, Jesus Christ said. He is spirit. God made us. We are different to animals. She said, oh yeah? Give me me some evidence then if we're made in the image of God. 
Well, I said, first of all, you understand that we are different to animals. I mean, look at the way animals act. There is within man a law at work. It's called the moral law. Animals don't have a moral law working within them. And it is a law, the moral code, it's a, it's a law. We call it a law because it's, it's universal. And it's common universally. It's not just particular to one group of people or this church or that church. It is a common, inherent, innate thing which we are born with. We are born with a consciousness of right and wrong. We know that it's a universal law because anywhere in the world, you know, everybody knows, it's right to tell the truth and it's wrong to tell a lie. Right and wrong. It's right to save life. It's wrong to kill. It's right to be brave. It's wrong to be a coward. And so on and so on. No matter where you are, no matter where you were born, no matter which culture, No matter which language, no matter where in the world, one common thing, common to humanity, is a moral law. You have to ask yourself, where did the concept of right and wrong come from? Who decided it was right to save life and wrong to kill? Where did that concept come from? How do we know what is right and wrong? We're different to animals in this sense, that a dog never stops to think about chasing a cat. It doesn't think to itself, um, if I chase that cat, that cat is going to be traumatized. I dare not, I won't do it, it's wrong to do it. The dog just acts solely out of instinct. And so does a cat, it saves its life. It belts away from danger. The moral code is at work in man. And it's only in humanity. You have a man on, on a, a river bank. He sees another man on the opposite side of the bank fall into the river. The man can't swim. He's beginning to drown and he cries out. It's a very fast running stream, a river really with a strong current. So the man, seeing the drowning man, acts first of all out of instinct. And he thinks, I must jump in and save him. But then another instinct comes into play, self-preservation, and he thinks, oh, I better not jump in, I may die. But then something else kicks in, which is like a judge between both instincts. It's his conscience, and the conscience speaks to him and says, you know what you should do. Now before he dies, do it. And this is the difference between animal life and all these so-called evolving species and mankind. There is within mankind the sense, the consciousness of right and wrong. And it separates us out from any other part of creation. We are, in the sense, made like God by knowing right and wrong And every human being, Christian of course or not, has this inner knowledge. Now, not everybody lives by it. It's an inner law, but not everybody obeys the conscience. The conscience gets cauterized, so it's no longer sensitive. 
You can then begin to do whatever you like and thinking you're okay, but what you've done is you've, this conscience is such a precious gift from God. It's a very sensitive thing. And when we get older and we become hardened to things and we, and, and you know, we act in bad ways, for example, or think bad thoughts. We're no longer sensitive to the moral law and code at work in our humanity. It's very important not to let your conscience get so hardened. We want to be soft and sensitive before the God of creation, lest he might not be able to speak to us anymore. So we're different, I said to her, in that way. But I said there is another way that we're different. And I think another proof of the existence of God is the spiritual search that's been going on in our world forever, called religion. Man is religious, actually, by nature. That's a pretty broad statement. History proves it. Geography proves it. Because no matter where you go in the world, you find evidence of man's religiosity, his religious behavior, from the most remote tribe to the modern western uh, cosmopolitan city, you find evidence of the religiosity of man. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that 83% of the total world's population are adherents of one of the world's religions that just over 4% are dogmatic atheists. That's a non-religious secular database. It's incredible. It speaks for itself that there is a search going on. Why is the search going on? It seems that no matter who you are or where you were born or when you were born, there was that sense of deity, that sense of something. And man, really, until they find their, 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 the God in whom they believe, the search really does continue to go on. You have to also ask yourself, we ask ourselves, where did the concept of right and wrong come from? Did some government or a group of governments at one point say, look, the world's growing. We've got to, we've got to define something here, a practice. What, what, what's going to be right and wrong? What is right and wrong? Well, of course, it's a concept that you don't really need to be described. You can be educated, but you still have a sense of right and wrong, because it's in the conscience that God has placed within us. Where did the concept of religion then come from? Where did it come from? At what point in the so-called evolution did consciousness come into being? Or did the concept of religion come into being? We're made in the image of God. God is spirit. God is spirit, and when we're born again, we are made triparts, like God is tripart. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. In our humanity, we are three in one. We are more than just a body, of course. But we're also more than a soul, which is the the sum total of our inner feelings and our will and our imagination. Our brain, place of thought and decision-making and the will. There is another dimension, as you know, to our humanity called the human spirit. 
You find it right the way through the Old Testament. You find it right the way through the New. We have a spirit. Now, whether you are a Christian, a born-again Christian or not, you have a human spirit. The whole way, you're born with one. That's how we're made. We are made in the image of God. Jesus said, my father is spirit in John 4. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we are born again, what happens is God, the Holy Spirit, we invite him into our life. God can and will not force himself into your heart, into your life. It's by invitation. God's given humanity free volition. It's a choice. And we either choose to or we choose not to. When you choose to, as I know, as any Christian here will know, that when when you invite the Holy Spirit to come into your life, the day you do so, you know God. I mean, I knew God by my parents. I knew about God through my parents. I saw the faith of my parents through adversity and the loss of two of my siblings. I saw that how they remained, how God, clearly something was keeping them. They weren't giving up and falling to pieces. They remained strong in their faith, despite the hardship. They were demonstrating to us kids the God in whom they believed. Now we knew that they believed in God. But I had personally never had, never experienced God like they did. Until I was 17, in a garage doorway, on my bicycle. I'd had a broken relationship. It's rather young to have a broken relationship, isn't it? I, actually, my earliest relationship was with a girl down the road called Doris LaCroix. And I went to Woolworths and I brought a ring with a licorice stick. I ate the licorice stick and I gave her the ring and asked her to become engaged. She was seven, I think, at the time. So I, was, I guess I was quite a romantic. I was just... just You know, I like licorice, but I also wanted a wife at the age of seven. What was the point of that? Uh, Where was I? I shouldn't digress like that. I can't even remember where I was going with it. How about that? Let me see now. That's not written down here. I'm sorry? Oh, thank you so much. That was an important point. That was an important point. I was 17. I had, yes, I had, I had a breakup with uh, somebody who was very special to me. And um, it kind of broke my heart at that time. Amazing how tender the heart is, you know, even at that age, so tender. And um, I stopped in this garage doorway. I had, I had been talking to a young guy who had himself received Christ. And he was, he was great. You know, he's really really cool and uh, he was a chef and he told me honestly he talked with me he said you know enough I can't do it for you and just that little simple thing did it for me and on the garage on the way home I was cycling home garage doorway I stopped in the garage doorway and I cried out to the God of my parents you know to the Lord I cried out and I said Lord I am so sorry for everything I've done wrong I want to know you. And in that garage doorway, the Holy Spirit came on me. I didn't know exactly who it was, but it was the Holy Spirit. And from within me came tears and joy, just an overflow. It was a very real touch of God and a very real experience. So I knew God was alive. And I also knew that day, if I was to die, that I'd go to home to heaven to be with him. 
how can you believe, how can you know and be so assured when you haven't seen him? How can you be so certain? Because the very next day my boss said, you're beginning to sound like Billy Graham and you're only one day into this adventure of yours. I, I was so excited by what happened to me. And, but <laughs> how can you know someone you've not seen? How can you love somebody you've not seen? We come to church and we worship somebody we have not seen. Strange. But you see, the thing is we have seen him. Because in a sense, it's that inner eye, that inner ability, the human spirit. Because what happens when you're born again is your human spirit is made a light. It says in Proverbs that the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. And before rebirth, before being born again, that candle is there. The human spirit is there. It's just that it's lying dormant. It's not lit. When the Holy Spirit comes, there is a dynamic action whereby you light up. You see. You, and nobody can take it from you. That's the strange thing. You become so assured, so certain. You just know. He's answered your questions. Even questions you, you didn't... Well, it's, just, it's amazing how questions just disappear when this happens. Because you stand in awe. You stand in awe at the reality that God exists. You're just amazed by it all. You're overwhelmed by his love as he touches you and, and touches you, your whole person. Life suddenly stopped being boring. I think Christians should be the most happy people in the world. We've got the most to be happy about because if we were to lose everything, we still have eternal life. We know where we're going. Now, I have to tell you, to know where you're going in this life is such a comfort. It's such a privilege. Awesome, awesome privilege. So, yes, I said I do think that we are made in the image of God in that we have a part to our humanity that animals don't have. It's a human spirit. And also we have also what animals don't have. We have a moral code working in us. We are, we didn't just evolve from nothing with no purpose. When did those things kick in? So she said, well, what about the Bible in itself? It's full of fables and myths. Uh, what about the great flood, for example? A flood floods the earth and a family gets saved in a boat. And they come up with all these arguments. Do you know that, in, uh, you know, they said, it says in Genesis chapter 7, 11 through 12, that the foundations of the great deep were broken up at the time of the flood. It didn't just rain for 40 days and 40 nights. The foundations of the deep, the springs from the earth, broke through the earth's crust. The ocean, the earth's crust, the foundations of the, deep, the great deep were broken up. So you have rock, rock just flying everywhere. You see, the, the thing is, one of the evidences for a great flood, apart from the fact that there are 130 stories of the great flood in ancient folklore, in cultures across the globe, 130 stories, and they are so remarkably similar. 
And that's before the internet. That's before missionaries went out. It's in ancient folklore. It's awesome. But fossiled, fossils have been found high up above sea level. And a fossil is not just the hard part, it's also the soft part. And these fossils are found buried. For for any creature to become fossilized, it has to be buried instantly, covered over. Instant coverage. Otherwise it will be eaten, it will rot, it will corrode, it will no longer exist. But fossils have been caught of fish eating fish. Animals in combat, in the act of combat, suddenly destroyed suddenly destroyed. When the great crust of the earth broke open and the springs flooded, which brought the flood, not just the rain, the rock and sand and sediment immersed animal life, fish eating fish, animals in combat, immersed the requisition for fossilization. No air present, so no oxidization. Those, the evidence of something like that is uh, common, buried immediately. Uh, so then uh, the girl I was sitting opposite went on to say, well, this is a religious book without any scientific interest, really. I said, well, 15th century uh, cosmologists wouldn't really agree with you. Do you know that in the 15th century, modern science, modern in those days, and even the king of Spain believed that the earth was flat. Some people would doubted it, but the common belief was the earth was flat. Christopher Columbus actually believed something different, and he believed that he could save west, sail westward to the Indias if he went down by the, the uh, past Sierra Leone and down right around, he could actually get there because he didn't believe the world was flat. But the king of Spain did, and so did the science, scientists of the day, the cosmologists. So Christopher Columbus went to the king of Spain in uh, 1492 and said, give me a ship. I'll sail and I'll prove we can open up a trade route to, the Indi- uh, to India and so on. Well, the king said no, thought it was a waste of time. But Christopher Columbus continued to ask for a ship. In fact, the king of Spain got so fed up with him, he gave him three ships. Santa Maria, the Pinta, and the Nina. (laughs) The The only crew that Christopher Columbus could persuade to join him on this journey were prisoners. No sailors wanted to go with him because they too believed that the earth was flat. And if you carried on sailing down towards the equator, you were going to, at some point, go over the edge. Right. Well, what's that got to do with the Bible? Well, I think it's got this to do with the Bible. 2,500 years before the cosmologists were convinced that the earth was round, Solomon wrote... He, God, drew a circle on the face of the deep in Proverbs 8, 27. How do you like that? Solomon said God drew a circle. How did he know it was a circle? Well, he couldn't know it was a circle. He hadn't been up there on an air balloon or into space. 
How did it come? By a higher intelligence, I imagine. Isaiah wrote 1,900 years before uh, the cosmologists of the day got it. Uh, or rather, Christopher Columbus proved it. Isaiah wrote, it is he who sits on the circle of the earth. Not on the edge of the world. On the circle. It's a sphere, the Bible says. Nearly 2,000 years before scientists got it, I said to her, don't you find that kind of interesting? Don't you think that the Bible maybe have some important things to say? And I said, what about medical science? The Bible's full of it. She said, where is that? I said, well, first of all, Moses was called out of Egypt to lead the people of Israel. Now, Egypt in those days was the dominant force in medical science. They wrote a book called Ebus Papyrus. Andrew, you're going to like this one. This is what they believed. Prescriptions for people losing hair. Uh, this is not a personal. This is because of your particular profession. This is, this is the prescription Egypt would give for those losing their hair. It's never helped me, I tell you. When it, when it falls out, one remedy is to apply a mixture of six fats. Namely, those of, hope you've got your taking notes here, just in case you need it. A horse, a hippopotamus, you'll have to go to the zoo, a, a, a crocodile, a cat, a snake, and an ibex. The fat of all of those will help you keep your hair. Another prescription. To save victims bitten by poisonous snakes, physicians had to give them magic water to drink. Water that had been poured over a special idol. That was the best medical science of the day. Now God calls Moses, get my people out of the land, to the land I'm going to show you. And by the way, there, there are certain laws that I want you to pass on to my people. Because if they obey me, none of the diseases that came upon Egypt will come upon you. Now let's deal with this thing called leprosy for a start. You have always believed, because the Egyptians did too, that when somebody became leprous, you were to protect them, to keep them, to comfort them, and to use some of these fats and poisons and all the rest of it to heal them, which didn't seem to help. God said to Moses this. He said, as long as he has the infection, that's the leprous person, he remains unclean, he must live alone, quarantine, God didn't use the word quarantine, but Moses wouldn't have understood the word anyway, he must live alone. Oh, Moses thinks, this is terrible, we didn't do that in Egypt, there are children with leprosy. There's a grandmother with leprosy. You mean that we're to put them out and they're to live alone? Yes, the Lord said. Yes, yes, yes. He must live outside the camp. Moses must have thought, huh, I've already had a hard time getting the children of Israel to believe that I am your man. And now I'm going to give them laws like this. They're going to think I'm a monster. 
But God, you see, understood communicable, infectious disease. But Moses didn't. There was no science medical, no science about that. But the Bible, the laws, God is giving Moses. Do you know that millions, countless millions of people have died even in Western nations up until about the uh, 17th century because nobody seemed to read the Bible. They thought it, that leprosy was caused by eating poisonous um, fish or pork or bad air. They didn't know. God said, separate them. It doesn't mean that you don't care, but that was God's way of bringing healing. But our scientists didn't quite get it. How could Moses have known? Well, he couldn't have known, because that was about 3,500 years later that our best medical scientists got it. There is another one which I, I, I think I've mentioned at some point before. I don't like to mention it, but I will. Human excrement. Not a subject you really want to talk about in church, church on a Sunday. But God talked about it, and it was essential. Okay, what did God say? God said this. He said um, that Israel, when they had to go to the loop, they were to go through the camp with an implement, a shovel. <laughs> the only problem with that, of course, is that everybody knows, you know, where you're going. Kind of embarrassing, especially if you're the tribes of England. But this is God's way of protecting them. Do you know that in modern Europe, even in the 19th century, in a modern western city, you had to be very careful when you walked down a narrow path. Because out of the window, something would be tipped in the morning. And it could just land on your head. But it certainly landed on the ground. And the problem is, is that insects came, flies came, and they bred in that mess. And that caused intestinal disease, all sorts of problems, sickness unto death. Why didn't they read the book? Because 3,500 years before our best medical science discovered it, it was written, a law given to Moses. And what about the washing of hands? Still our hospitals haven't got it. You go into hospitals and it says, now wash your hands, now wash your hands. You go to the loo, now wash your hands, now wash your hands. I go to regularly to a gym, as you can see, and I am absolutely amazed by people that use the facilities there and I see them going straight out and into to use the machinery. I always now wash my hands before and afterwards. It's the personal hygiene, it's very poor in our educated society. Washing of hands is very important. Vienna in the 1940s was a very important medical, had a very important medical center. It was a, it was a, a practitioner's hospital next to a maternity 
I, I am not going to go into this right now, otherwise I'm never going to get to the end of my subject. So forgive me for that, but I won't mention that. Needless to say, God said you must wash your hands. These are laws that were given 3,500 years, and our modern society still can't get the picture. Now how could Moses have known what he was talking about? He did not understand communicable infectious disease. Our best medical scientists got it 3,500 years later. Do you not think that that shows that the Bible must have been inspired by a higher intelligence to that of our best scientists? So I said, please, do not say to me that the Bible is full of myths and fantasies and, and, and uh, fairy tales. It's full of science and full of medical advice. And you call me biased. And yes, I'm biased, I said to her. I am totally biased. Because if God got it right about medical, uh, about infectious and communicable disease 3,500 years before our best scientists, if you don't mind, I'm going to believe what else God said about what he did and what he didn't do. Wouldn't you? Doesn't it make sense? This is a God in whom we believe, a very practical God. Okay. Religion. One of the hottest subjects of our day. Apparently people will say, and there is some justification in it, religion's the problem of all, <laughs> it's behind the, all of our world's problems. Well, that's not quite true. Hitler's um, time on earth was not because of religion. It was, it was something else, some other uh, ideology. But religion does actually tend to cause people to argue and debate. I, I'm not against arguments and debates. You know, Paul said, I stand in defense of the gospel. He said, in the fear, knowing the fear, with the fear of God, he said, I persuade men. Paul was an apologist. He stood for the defense of the gospel. Some people would say, well, the gospel doesn't need defending. God can take care of himself. We are to stand for the defense of the gospel. We are to stand for the authenticity, divine inspiration of the Bible. Why? Well, because the Bible is the thing that we really begin, we put our trust in. It tells us where we've come from. It tells us who we are. It tells us where we're going. It has a message for the nations. It has a vital message in it. So yes, we do stand for the defense. Do all religions lead to the same God? Of course they do. No, I was only joking. No, they don't. That might sound a bit arrogant. Narrow-minded, perhaps, to some people. Well, not even the religions agree that it, all religions lead to the same God. Islam. The Quran, it's, this is what they believe from the outset, 570 AD in Mecca. The Quran, it, it says, Muhammad says, replaces all other corrupted books of revelation. So what's Muhammad saying? It's the only divinely inspired book, the rest are corrupt, no longer relevant. Mormonism, more recent, Joseph Smith, 1805 AD. He said, at the foundation of his religion, they, that is other sects, were all wrong and their creeds were an abomination in his sight. 
Has God changed his mind somewhere along the way? Did God say one thing to Muhammad? Uh, you know, all the others are wrong now. Forget Judaism, Christianity, don't even give it a look in. Has God changed his mind when he's speaking to Joseph Smith? Because he now says their creeds were an abomination in his sight. The Jehovah Witnesses started around about 1869. And the Watchtower said this. It's the Jehovah Witnesses. It's God's sole collective channel. Sole collective channel. In other words, the only one for the flow of biblical truth to men on earth. You see, even the religions don't agree with each other. So how can all roads lead, all religions lead to the same God? Because they all disagree. You have to ask yourself the question, if God is truly omnipotent, and there was only one way to God, couldn't he, the Almighty, by now, after some, in some cases thousands of years, brought all of his followers who are following this, that and the other into one path to him. Didn't he have the power to do that? Well, he didn't need to have the power because there's only one way to God. There's only one way. This is what we believe and will continue to believe. And I trust we will continue after today too. So one has to ask the question, why would God say to one religion, you are right and all the others wrong, when he was the one who started them in the first place? It makes no sense. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. We have to conclude, I believe, that all roads actually do not lead to the same God. Now, C.S. Lewis, the author of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm sure you know, um, he had this to say about religion. He said, religion is like arithmetic. In arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum. There's only one right answer to a sum. And all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. So what he's saying is, concerning religions, they all have something that's right. Morally, there are good things. Some good wisdom, some good understanding, some profound truths. But if they have one major thing wrong, like they do not believe, for example, that there is a saviour for mankind, and there is only one religion that does, if they do not believe that there is a saviour for mankind, mankind's in a pretty sorry state. So he said, in arithmetic it is possible to have 10 out of 11 figures correct, but just one wrong figure makes the whole sum wrong. And that is correct, and this is what's so deceptive about our world. If you were the enemy of mankind, would you not inspire religions all over the place, but just deny them a saviour, a personal redeemer? Because man, the enemy, Satan, and his demon host, knows that man is made in the image of God. He knows that man is a spiritual being and has a hunger for spiritual reality and will, and will search. And if there isn't a religion in the country and there's not one uh, appropriate or one that's within reach, they'll probably start their own. Because man needs to worship somehow. Strange, isn't it? 
man needs to worship. So anyway, I had a, I was doing a meeting uh, in Sudbury, and there was, I didn't know it at the time, or I knew it afterwards, but I didn't know it when I was speaking, that there was a young uh, businessman who was becoming a lawyer, who was uh, in the meeting. And um, he asked me afterwards if I had a card, a business card. I gave him the business card. A few days later, he called me at my place of work. And he said, look, David, he said, I, I liked what you had to say, and I just want to talk to you. I'm experiencing some great problems in my life and in my marriage, to be honest. And I really do need to meet with you. Would you speak with me? So I invited him and his wife over to my home. And... Um, got to know him. I recognized when I saw him anyway that he was Jewish and he was training to be a lawyer. His business had gone bankrupt. He had married uh, a very beautiful air hostess who was totally uh, in admiration of, of his, of his um, I think he had a Ferrari at that time. He had a small plane. He had a very successful business. What he didn't tell her when he proposed was he was uh, going bankrupt. So the wife, I guess, bless her, thought she was marrying a very successful... Well, he was successful. It's just that he over-invested. So anyway, it brought all sorts of tensions. And um, their marriage was in a state. So I said, tell me about yourself, Philip. So he said, well, David, he said, um, I was brought up in an Orthodox Jewish home. So I said, well, I have a menorah on my cupboard, I have a mezuzah on my door. I could hardly complain and say, well, uh, end of conversation. So uh, I, I could identify with him. He, he was, so I was brought up in an orthodox uh, home, a Jewish home. He said, but I never found satisfaction. And as I grew up, I became a Buddhist. So I, that didn't cut it for me either. So said that both me and my wife have become Mormons and we are about to get baptized. So after he said to me, I was brought up in a Jewish home, I thought, that's not a problem. Not a problem, we'll deal with that one. But then when he said, I became a Buddhist, I thought, we have a little problem here. And then when he said, we became Jehovah uh, uh, Mormons, I thought, now we really do have a problem here. I thought, I had to think on my feet, so I thought, well, oh God, I thought, how long do you have? This is worse than my daughter. Who's going who's gonna to deliver me from all these questions? Ah, oh, we had a wonderful time, I have to tell you. Uh, I will tell you how it went. Because I believe there's a simple, simple way of showing the uniqueness of Jesus when you don't have long to do it. Okay, question. Islam. Muhammad was born in Mecca in 570 AD. Islam did not exist before Muhammad was born, by the way, and neither did the Quran. So, first came the religion, Islam, then came the book, the Quran, and the prophet. Muhammad, of course, was in the mix too. Buddhism. Buddhism was kind of created in Nepal, 560 BC. Buddha, 
had a revelation after I was, did, did something fall on his head? Proving the law of gravity probably, a long time ago. Anyway, he had a vision and um, he wrote the sacred books of Buddhism, the three baskets. Do you see a kind of a trend here? So first came, first came the man. Let's get the order right. First came the man, Muhammad. The religion didn't exist, so he... Islam and the book didn't exist, the Quran. Same with Buddha. The religion did not exist before Buddha was born. Buddha was born. He started Buddhism and he wrote the three books, three baskets. Confucianism. Confucius, born in China, 550 BC. Lots of wonderful wisdom in his work. So Confucius... Uh, Confucianism did not exist before Confucius was born. Confucius was born, so he started his religion, Confucianism, and wrote his books. Where did he get all these names from? The Analects. Mormonism. Mormonism, when did it start? Well, I have to tell you, it did not start before Joseph Smith was born. Joseph Smith was born. He had his vision. He started his religion called Mormonism, and he wrote his book, Book of Mormon. So what's the pattern? First came the man, then came the religion, then came the books. And that is the same pattern for every single religion on earth. Now I have a problem with this, except one. I have a problem with this, and the problem is, I've only got your word for it. Apostle Williams has planted some wonderful churches, but he could say, well, it's about time I'm so great now, I am, I'm going to start my own religion, and I'm going to call it Williamism. <laughs> and everyone will follow him and they'll become Williamisms. And right across the world, the church of Williamism will be planted. You see, the problem is, when I love the man, I know that he is serving another greater man, and I am serving that same man. So, but you know, the truth is, who were these men? Nothing was written about them before they come. Okay, nothing was written about Muhammad. Nothing was written about Confucius. Nothing was written about Buddha. They came. They started their own religion. They had a vision. <laughs> I have visions. I have visions very often. I wouldn't want to start a religion on some of them. But anyway, anyone could have a vision. So the man came, started his religion, wrote his books gathered his followers. I have to tell you, it's just not good enough for a cynic like me. I am not going to give my life to somebody who that came and said it was this and that. I'm going to put a criteria on my demands for the leader that I'm going to follow. I mean, first of all, number one, 39 books have to be written telling his life before he comes. In fact, 1,600 years before he's born, those 39 books have to tell his family tree. Nobody can invent their family tree. No, 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 no. No, not with all the databases you have today. You'll be found out. Your family tree. No, you can't invent it. His family tree has to be written down 30 in 39 books, or many of those 39 books, 1,600 years before he comes. In fact, 
His place of birth is going to have to be foretold before he comes. His rejection is going to have to be talked about hundreds of years before he comes. His betrayal, and not just his betrayal, you try and get out of this one, how much he was betrayed for exactly, has to be foretold 700 years before he's betrayed. How about that? Okay, let's up the ante now. His triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem has to be talked about hundreds of years before he comes. His torture has to be prophesied before he comes. How he was tortured, hands and feet pierced 1,000 years before he comes, before crucifixion was even invented. How could anybody know that stuff? The Bible was written, 66 books. It was written by in three different languages, in three different continents. It was written by all sorts of people. People in captivity, people on the battlefield, people in exile. And yet there is a wonderful unity right the way through the book. People who didn't even know each other are saying the same thing throughout the book. Now, I think if somebody stands up and says to me, David, your search is over. You've been looking for the God of heaven and earth. You've just found him. His name is Jesus, Jesus Christ. I will follow him forever. I will not fear what man shall do to me. I'll be the happiest, proudest, most vocal man on earth because he excites me with his truth. He didn't come to start another religion. He came to fulfill. Fulfill the only true religion. There is no other religion on earth like this. Man started the other ones. I would say in closing, such a man such a precious man, such a loving God, such a fabulous saviour, such a friend who is with you in the middle of the night when you wake up and all the world seems dark and then he just speaks to you through his scriptures by his Holy Spirit. You begin to meditate on the word of God. Fear not, trust in me. He speaks to you morning, noon and night. He draws near. How can God do that? Because he's omniscient, omnipotent. He knows us all. Loves us. Draws close. Overlooks our past. In fact, he's separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. It'll never converge. It's going in different directions. It's furthest points. He remembers it no more. What a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now if this is the one we've chosen to follow. If he is God, and I think it's proven in the scriptures, the Bible is a dynamic book. Because it's full of information written hundreds of years before things happened, before our science has got it. By the way, the girl on the train 
We left at Liverpool Street. My stop was Colchester. We shot past Colchester. We went to Ipswich. I had to leave her then. And she said, David, I'm, I'm, I'm now worried. She had been commissioned as a science graduate to write an article, Christianity versus Science. And she said, I'm, I'm now very worried. I said, I had to go. I said to her, I said, listen, my love. I didn't say my love. I knew her name. I called her by name. I said, look, do you know anybody? Do you know a good church locally? She said, actually, I do. I said, why don't you go there and have a chat with the pastor or somebody there? And she said she was going to do it. She had shifted. Shifted. Isn't that what our lives are for? To draw, like Jesus draws near to us by his Holy Spirit. Evangelism is, it's not about hammering people or shouting. It's drawing near. It's becoming friendly. It's, it's loving people. I love what it says about Jesus when the rich young ruler came to him. He said he, the Bible said that he looked at him and loved him. The rich young ruler didn't want to know. <laughs> he didn't want to give up his riches. So he, the rich young ruler went away without knowing Jesus for who he really was or receiving him. And Jesus, it said, was sorrowed. But he didn't run after him. And God will not always run after. We need to be careful. There's a time and a place for our moment with God. And if we become hardened to that moment or, and reject and continue to reject, you know, God may say one day, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to yourself. If Jesus is God and he is, I reckon that we should, the world should hear what he had to say. I would call them vital statements. Jesus said in the New Testament to mankind about why he came. He came because of God's love for mankind, to seek and save the lost, to call all to repentance, to give his life for mankind, to give rest to the heavy laden, to give everlasting life, to fully satisfy man's spiritual thirst. His vital statements to people generally, I am the way to the Father. You must be born again. You must believe in me. To follow Jesus, to follow me, he said, will cost you something. This is more important than temporary gain. Be ready for my return. I will judge the earth. These things will happen. If everything else has happened in the, in the Bible that was prophesied, these things, they've not yet happened. And this is why Jesus also gave warning to the nations. He said there will be great tribulation. We've yet to see that. He will be returning like lightning. And it says every eye will see him when he comes. Every eye will see his return. He will come. He came first time as savior. He was crucified in weakness. And even in his weakest moments, he was stronger than anything that we could imagine. Because it wasn't the cross that kept Jesus there at the place of crucifixion. It was love that kept him there. It wasn't just a plan that brought him. It was the love of God that brought him. There was a plan because God always has got a plan. God is a great planner, but God is a great actor. And Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And he was crucified 
in weakness. But three days later, he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will not come as Savior, he will come as judge. And if anybody has earned the right to judge, just judgment. It's one who has laid his life down for the sins of mankind. Such love um, qualifies someone to judge. I believe, because his judge judgments will be according to truth. So he will judge the nations. Sadly, some will go to hell. That's the Bible. You know, some people say, Hell, I can't bear it. Bible, I'm afraid, talks very plainly about it. In fact, the one who speaks the most plainly about hell and its existence was the very one who came and laid his life down in love for us. It's real. And others he will thankfully receive into his kingdom. Well, I'm not going to leave that one to chance. I want to be on the right side. I want to be in the right hands. So when he comes, I want to be ready. I want to be found to be faithful, loving him, serving him. I want him to say to me, like he said to someone else in the Bible, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, I trust it's been helpful to you this morning. It's been lovely to be with you and a real joy. And I would ask the Lord to really bless you and help you. You know, in in, in this thing called evangelism, you know the most wonderful thing you can do in life is to give birth, isn't it? When a newborn baby is born, oh, what joy it fills your heart. It brings joy. It's a happier moment. The day somebody becomes a Christian is such a happy day. And if you help somebody find their way, you can't save anybody, by the way. Don't, Don't try. You can't save people. But you can influence people, you can encourage people, you can give your testimony, you can talk about these great things, big subjects if you wish. Whatever it takes to lift the barriers to faith. So the Son of God, who's knocking at the door of the hearts, so those people will be encouraged to open, knowing whom they are opening, or knowing who they're opening to. The Lord bless you. Thanks. Shall we rise up on our feet, please? I want you to pray. Bow your heads and pray and tell the Lord. If there is anyone here who had not known him, you pray the prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I want to accept you into my heart. Let's bow our heads together. Tell the Lord Jesus, Jesus said in the book of Revelations, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in, he says. What a joy to accept Jesus as a Lord and Savior. Jesus is proven beyond reasonable doubt that he is the Lord. 
Father, we bless your name. We thank you. In Jesus' anointed name we are prayed. Lord, I want to pray for everyone under my voice. Thank you for giving us this privilege to hear about the evidence of life. If anybody is educated, he can only find out that the word of God is true. That you are the only son of God. The one who came from heaven to restore us back to God. And also as we have stretched our hands to you this morning, we receive salvation through faith in your name. And I speak, Lord. The Bible says you sent your word and it healed your people. Father, I speak healing to every physical body that has been sick. If you came here today sick in your body, you are healed in the name of Jesus Christ. I say your bones are healed. I say your joints are healed. I say that your organs are healed. Father God, I pray anyone who is suffering from blood diseases, I decree by the power and the blood of Jesus, you are made whole. Father, people who have problems like diabetes, oh Lord, somebody who pass out blood all the time, I command it to cease from this very hour. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. First in soul, you are healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Every form of headache, I command it to depart in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We bless your name because it is done. Ask we ask in Jesus' holy name, we are prayed. Somebody say amen. God sent his son. They call him.